All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Agitator Podcast. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Kelby Losack. And today we are going to talk about Perfect Blue. What year was this movie? Who gives a shit? Um, we we had a guest uh, scheduled for this episode. We had a... Uh, Excuse me, who are you? And um, our first attempt at recording didn't work. And then we tried to reschedule... But unfortunately, she backed out, which can only, to my mind, can only mean one thing. And that is that she must have actually listened to the show. I hate when guests do that. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, ah, this might be kind of bad for my image. But no, not this time. Whatever, it's fine. Like, we might reschedule for the future and, I don't know, do some other girl movies. Um, what, what were your... What were your... <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Agitator. We're going to talk about Sailor Moon. Um, well, so Perfect Blue. Um, I know that you had thoughts on this movie. I will say up front, this is a fan. It's a fantastic movie. It's really good. Um, all the comparisons to Hitchcock, I'm not really sure if those are true or not because I think I've seen, I've seen Vertigo, and I've seen Psycho, and that's it. Have you seen any other Hitchcock movies besides like the ones that I mentioned? I've seen a, a decent amount of Hitchcock. I almost said a bunch of Hitchcock, but I know some of the people who listen to this show and no, are big I, I Hitchcock heads. Yeah, I couldn't hang yeah. with them. Uh, right. Yeah, like North by Northwest, Rear Window. Uh, the oh, I've seen Rear Window too. That's right. Yeah, I've seen that one. That's where Jimmy Stewart's like whacking off. He's like watching people and jerking. Yeah, them. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. You know what's better than Rear Window though? Disturbia. Disturbia. Oh, right with uh, Leboeuf. Yeah, that one is pretty good. Was that Classic. a re- that was a remake, right? Uh-huh. It's a remake of Rear Window. Yeah, there's no yeah, dick yeah, jokes yeah. in Rear Window, so. Right, and Disturbia is that where the is that where the Rihanna song comes from? Because that's a badass song. It's a banger. Yeah, so that that movie gave us a lot more than Rear Window did. So it's a this is an intense movie. It reminded me a lot of Black Swan, which I did not really remember liking all that much. Black Swan had some cool surreal elements in it. But Arnofsky is this guy who, like, uh, did you ever see The Fountain? His, uh, like, time time travel, or not time travel, like, alternate universe movie thing. Oh, no, I didn't see that one. So, I mean, it starts off and it has this incredible image of a bald Hugh Jackman floating in a bubble in space. And the bubble's got, like, little, um, like, bonsai trees in it. And then it, if I remember correctly, it goes back in time and Hugh Jackman is like a conquistador. I can't really remember exactly, but it has this, this promise of being kind of a really awesome, you know, kind of surreal sci-fi movie. And I remember it not doing that at all. So Arnofsky to me is always, he's one of these guys who like always seems to pull back right before things get interesting. You know, I know he did Requiem for a Dream and that's, that's like a classic for, uh, you know, it's like right next to the Donnie Darko poster in, in the room. You yeah. know, it's like Donnie Darko, Requiem for a Dream. Uh, actually, I don't know if that's true. I don't, I might be uh, Mandela effect with that. 
I don't know if I know anybody with a Requiem for a Dream poster, but you know, it feels like that same kind of uh, genre, right? I would all, like, they'd always be like next to each other in the video store or whatever. Because our like hmm. video store, they would spend, they'd leave the posters up for like two years. So whatever okay. was yeah. really big, like whatever really hit with whoever, like the kids working there at the time, whatever hit with them for a couple of years, like that, that's what was up there. And yeah, Requiem and Donnie Darko, for sure. Mm-hmm. Right on. So with this movie, um, there, uh, I'll let you start actually, because you said you had some interesting thoughts about this. So if you want to take things like plot synopsis and and go from there, I think that's probably a good structure for this episode. Yeah, we we can summarize it real quick. Uh, let's see, Mima Kirogui, Kirogi, Kirogi, Karaoke. That's it. Yeah, Karaoke. Mima Karaoke. Uh, right. which her last name means singer. Okay. It's the All right. Japanese word for singer, karaoke, okay. which is where we get the word karaoke, what people do in bars when they're drunk. That is a such a fun fact. So yeah, Mima Karaoke, she's a, a J-pop idol from this trio, and there's this dude who's like obsessed with her like good girl image or whatever which is shattered by her venturing off into uh becoming a full-time actress she vanessa hudgens her way into like a more serious career basically or whatever that's a good one yeah or uh, uh christina million did that too there we go so uh there's there's this creeper dude who like is always filming her and shit and he runs this um mima's room uh diary website uh, where he posts as her pretending mm-hmm. like like as if it's her diary and he's trying to like explain her actions for hers to like make sense of it all yeah it's fan fiction for this singer basically like he's he's narrating her life so her manager and former pop idol uh Rumi she she tells her like just ignore it right so like mm-hmm. Rumi is this like fat chick who used to be a pop idol in her own day and now she's managing this other idol and she and Mima's agent uh Tadakoro they're kind of at odds with each other sometimes where he's trying to be like you know get her all the jobs and shit and then Rumi is also trying to control her image in her own way and so her first job that she lands as an actress is in this uh little a detective thing um called double double blind or double bind it was called yeah it's double it's double bind yeah yeah so she uh has this little minor role that they push to give her like a larger uh a larger part in the show and so the writers are like um oh okay sure we'll give you a, a larger role and so they write her into a rape scene and Rumi is all like, no, we're not doing that, blah, blah, blah. This will you like shatter her reputation or whatever. And Mima's like, no, I got to do this because this, you know, I'm, I'm an actor now and this is, this is what I'm doing. Uh, so between, it's sort of like Paprika's in the middle when it starts, like, like the lines between reality and fantasy start blurring and she's on this mm-hmm. show. She's 
reading these diary entries that are written by somebody not her she's like seeing herself in uh, like herself dressed up as like in her pop idol get up like she sees herself throughout the world and everything being like what are you doing blah 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 where does it go from there people start getting murdered yeah people start getting murdered so first it's the writer who wrote her into the rape scene and then or no a bomb goes off first uh, so someone mails a little letter bomb to the set and it hits her agent but doesn't kill him and then the writer uh gets stabbed a whole bunch of times bunch of other people get killed long story short right because this movie gets very twisty it deals with uh, identity in a really interesting way and a person's relationship to the the public and I, th- I think it's interesting because it utilizes this framework of it you know this pop star who's trying to change her image and essentially her her fans not not enjoying it not liking it like not going along with it um, and I, but I think that that's really interesting for regular people too now in an age of social media where we've all created brands for ourselves and have uh are in this constant uh sort of thought process about like what is you know when i post this what does this make me look like what does this make people think about me right and uh you know when you turn normal people who don't have agents and handlers and scriptwriters and things like that into uh, mimas, right? A bunch of little mimas. You end up with people who are completely fucking insane, right? And it ends up turning out that it's Rumi, who is, you know, the washed-up pop idol who sees a potential redo of of her failures in Mima, uh, who is kind of guiding the hand of the uh, hoodie-wearing, uh, deformed guy, who who's kind of like the creeper throughout the movie. Uh, and it ends with this kind of great scene where. Uh, Mima sees it as her being chased by her kind of alter ego. Pop, pop. Her pop identity is chasing her f- across the rooftops and you know through glass and uh, through city streets and you know getting hit by cars and things like that. But it's actually Rumi, uh, who looks really funny in like a pop idol ballerina suit because you know she's like she's a little. How do they say it? How do people say it on the internet? She's she's a chunk. She's chunky. Um, <laughs> How do people say she's? <laughs> uh, I thought you were going a good, different direction. I was going to say she has a good personality. Well, she has a terrible personality. She's trying to kill our yeah. protagonist. Yeah. I yeah. mean, which is also actually something this movie really gets right about overweight people. But um, <laughs> the so anyway, and then I'm pretty sure after that the movie just kind of wraps up and. That's it. I saw this movie two weeks ago, which is crazy long for my memory. Um, but there were like there were a few things that I thought were really important to point out. The first one that I thought was badass was uh, uh, Satoshi Khan, who directed the movie and also did, as Kelby mentioned, Paprika and Millennium Actress, and which are oddly enough movies that I have seen. I'd, I'd never seen his his debut uh, film. Um, he this is based on a book so this was uh, i saw an interview where people were wondering why the movie's called perfect blue and khan says uh like i don't know it's like it might make sense in the original novel but he like refused to read it and the uh the novelist wrote a screenplay treatment and he just threw it in the trash without even looking at it 
because he he just hated it so much which i think is i think that's just badass right like as somebody who does his best to not be precious about like my own work if if somebody that talented just threw one of my books away and was like this is garbage but then made a really cool movie out of it i'd be like that's fucking sick because i would collect a check you see what i'm saying like i would collect a check and I would be the guy who wrote the book version, so I might get some book sales. Uh, and then also the movie's really good because it's done by somebody who's actually capable. Um, so anyway, that, that and the identity thing were my, my two major takeaways from this movie. Yeah, that's what I always thought about um, Stephen King. Like, what, what's, his, what's his problem? Because if you wrote The Shining and that book exists, and then Stanley Kubrick takes that does its own visionary like scrapping and reassembling of his shining why would that not be cool to you what's the name of the rat from chuck e cheese is he actually chuck e cheese is he charles cheese yes (laughs) the rat from chuck e cheese is named chuck e cheese okay yeah that's what stephen king looks like he looks like that thing (laughs) did you know that chuck e cheese rebranded during the pandemic they gave themselves like a new name because chuck e cheese completely fucked if you can't have in-person customers because the whole thing is like it's a casino for children so you want you want to have people there playing skee-ball and uh you know time crisis or whatever it is that they play these days and if you can't do that like how do you survive I can't, I'm trying to remember the name that they rebranded to for their food, like for takeout food. But I think they tried to rebrand as like a, like an Italian restaurant or something like that. They were called like, like Papa Doodles or Papa, something like that. <laughs> they couldn't even make pizza right. How are they going to be an Italian restaurant? Oh, no, I know. The food is terrible, but it was tough times for Chuck E. Cheese and places similar to that. They had to figure out how to survive. So I, I really, that's one of my favorite pandemic stories is that, you know, Chuck E. Cheese had to fight for survival in a, in a cold world. What, did you have any, any thoughts about this movie? Well, I mean, first, as far as the visuals, like, it looks awesome. It's got, like, this dark subject matter full of rape and murder and identity crisis, fantasy, reality, dissociative identity disorder and all this, and it's like... Uh, coupled with this like candy pop soundtrack yeah i did like the soundtrack those songs were fucking fire it was all like the, that kind of j-pop stuff that really goes my son loves that kind of like and like the movie was on um and he was playing with toys i was watching it in the living room and it was starting and they were playing uh their opening tune or whatever and um he just started you know rocking out and i was like oh cool yeah i was like i'll, I'll watch this you know it's how bad could it be and then I had to pause it like 20 minutes in because I was like, oh, shit, can't show him the uh, fucking <laughs> staged rape scene, uh, which is pretty intense, man. The staged rape scene in this is really well done. And I think that what one thing this movie gets right is focusing on just the psychological aspect of, of rape in general is, is so dominant in, in the act itself that like even you know pretending there's there's a scene where like the actor mm-hmm. who's supposed to be raping her is like he's he apologizes but like it's still you know so devastating to her after that scene happens that she's still like her mind still fractures
I love watching movies where the internet is new and they're finding out how all of this works when she's introduced to the Mima's Room website where this creepy guy is narrating her day in a way that starts to get way too close to reality. Um, he starts, you know, actually giving details that he really shouldn't be privy to. I just kind of feel like this movie was really prescient with the way that the internet would start to affect our lives, right? Because it's immediately posited as a malevolent force for perverted scumbags to, uh, you know, act out their, their fantasy lives at the expense of real flesh and blood people. And brother, if that didn't play out in reality, yeah, I'll tell you what, yeah. And especially in a movie about an artist with an identity disorder, right? Because mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. everybody does it to themselves on purpose now. And then it acts like that's what we all do. I really, yeah. I felt like real Mima in this movie. I was like, that's, like, that's me being like, oh, this is fun, what's this? Oh, this is not fun mm -hmm. anymore. Uh, <laughs> and... And then at the end, in the in the rear view, when they're like, "Why would she be here? She would have no reason to be here. That must be a lookalike." And she's like, "It's me, bitches." Because no, nobody's real. Nobody's real anymore. So you 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 just said that you felt like the girl in this movie. Is that what you said? Did I hear that correctly? No. What I meant to say is. Uh... This is definitely a, just a really well put together movie. There's a, online there are synopsis, synopses of what the plot actually is, but that's not, I don't know, man. When I watch these things, I really, I don't care who's like what's real and what's not. You know what I mean? Like if, if Perfect Blue had never had a resolution and we never find out that it's Rumi who's orchestrating all this and, you know, uh, I love it when, in the movie when you start to wonder if the TV show that Mima is starring in isn't actually real life yeah. and that she's she's created this uh, persona of herself as a singer turned actress and you know she's just playing a role see i thought that was fucking dope and so if if the movie had even left it at that i i love that kind of um you know, ambiguous type ending. That kind of Philip K. Dick, what is reality mm -hmm. type shit. There's a video on YouTube that I'm never going to watch that's like eight hours and it's like Twin Peaks, what actually happened. I, I just can't understand that kind of relationship uh, to art that people want to have of like dissecting. I just don't get it. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to tear it apart. I want to, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to vibe with it. Like there's one for uh, Mulholland Drive that puts it all together too. And oh, I've God. I I remember I read it. I did read it like back when I was younger when I first watched the movie and it like explains the correct chronology of everything like if it had just been a linear movie which is I mean it base it's really easy to understand. You just flip the parts of the movie, right? Like you take the back half and put it up front and you would just have a chronological movie. And then it tries to explain like who the cowboy is and all this kind of stuff and I don't know. I don't remember any of it and I don't I don't care because that's not what the movie is doing. If it was supposed to be read that way, 
then Lynch would have just put it together that way, right? Imagine creating something too with the intention of somebody figuring it out. Like, who the fuck? Who cares? Right, right. Well, that's one thing that I'm uh, really interested about. Like with um, with writing in general, I know you're kind of on this tip too, right? Is uh, like the just trying to make things that are entertaining and fun, but moving as far away as I possibly can from the impulse to make things uh, connect with each other. You know, I I don't see very many art that's like this. That's or I don't see art very much, I should say, that's like this. But I think that I think it's I think there have got to be other people like you and me who want this kind of thing, right? Who who want nonlinear. Uh, strange, disconnected, tonal shifted works of art that that don't make any sense. Because I, th- I feel like that's what the internet is. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the intriguing things about it is this like disjointed and yet somehow like completely incoherent monstrosity like blended together on in one stream and often thrown at you like in a, in some random algorithmic order and that that's what we keep going back to to look at all day so right 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 and and the, and the whole idea that i could hear naysayers saying is well why would you just want to mimic the internet and it's not trying to mimic the internet in its totality it's not trying to take every element from the internet but it's it's essentially books have to start acknowledging that the internet exists in a way that extends beyond, you know, having uh, Discord chats and having Gmail uh, messages and you know tweets and Facebook posts. That's not that's not incorporating the internet into a book really at all. I think that uh, B. R. Yeager's Amygdala Tropolis did it really well, um, where you actually kind of felt the the vibe of 4chan in the book itself um but like this these kind of superficial cosmetic changes to the way that a book looks is not actually incorporating the potential artistic modes necessitated by the internet and that's what i'm trying to get at yeah yeah the narrative structure of like from us clicking between tabs and half reading things and switching through different mediums video text glossing over stuff lingering on other things and then being assaulted by things that we didn't want to see and none of it connecting whatsoever but it being part of this one thing because it's all on the internet like it's that sort of structure that I'm interested in like trying to sort of implement is that that like that impulse does that make like to try and like get on the flip side of that impulse and instead of jumping around on the internet like creating something like that sporadic chaotic sort of internally subconsciously understood to like like to some to somehow articulate that in the form of a book yeah and it's all i mean and basically doing all of that and bringing the bringing the um the fact that you're the one who's writing it to the forefront 
you know i mean it's it's partially an object of curation but at the end of the day it's your words that are going out onto a page so you're able to take the actual thing that people like about reading i think which is listening to a certain person's voice hanging out with an author um and and, and putting that voice in the service of this very particular very 2022 aesthetic project somebody somebody who did not he didn't do what we're talking about but the one of the few authors besides uh, you know Jaeger who I mentioned earlier Dennis Cooper with his gift novels I think comes comes kind of close to that right where he's not he's not writing so it's not exactly what we're talking about but that idea of um, you know he'd have these these books called like Zach's haunted house right yeah, yeah or something yeah. like that um, and he did he did a few of these and it's very you know Dennis Cooper it's very pedophile it's very like super bloody anime it's visually uh, interesting but like it's him curating these gifts and I don't even know where he he where he gets them from I don't know if he's digging for these gifts if he's finding them on 4chan but I love the audacity of him to be for him to be like uh, you know this is this is a novel again not exactly what we're talking about but like that's the that's the spirit well it's the same spirit of like not trying to understand and piece together like plot of a movie and what just happened but to rather just like feel it those gift novels is like if you if you read them or if you scroll through the gifts like it it's a story like it's the it's this novel size story that you get through scrolling these gifts so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i mean that that's what it is and so just like yeah fucking with the aesthetic of it is i think the whole goal of a lot of uh any of my artistic projects right now it, it's all aesthetic people have been you know telling stories we've had different narrative devices like set in stone for centuries now i just just want to fuck with like the how of things like how it is being presented yeah Yeah. and i mean and there are thinkers who go back at this point at almost a couple hundred years who are talking exactly about what we are talking about right now and they tried in their own way to experiment none of them come to mind because i'm retarded and i don't (laughs) know my history but but i you know i recognize you know if we had somebody uh you know smarter on the podcast, I'm sure they could point us to you know people who have said exactly the things that we're saying, particularly about abandoning traditional storytelling techniques or um, you know utilizing white space or trying to fragment a narrative and allow readers to to fill in the gaps. None of that is new. I mean, you know, people like Mary Robinson is is probably a, a good example of somebody who's used fragmented narratives to great effect in why did i ever or somebody like pierre guillotat who you know did eden 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 where it's just you know these endless descriptions of violence with no real violence rape torture stuff like that with no real uh, you know goal towards a, a kind of formal story so it's not that these things haven't happened i just haven't really seen this is something that that is really really tough for me as somebody who's sort of a populist when it comes to art on the one hand in, in the sense that I, I really like uh, beautiful things. I, I do like clarity. I like good jokes. I like punchlines. Uh, but then somebody who's also 
a complete pretentious, you know, art nerd, right? Somebody who like, who I really do like, uh, not just like David Lynch stuff, but experimental film and music and the other side of this kind of thing. I've, I've very rarely, and this is, this is my project, right? I have very rarely seen those two things synthesized and in like in a, in a readable way where you have, I think Blake Butler has come pretty close with uh, Alice Knott and 300 million. I think that's pretty close to, to being, you know, something that is really sort of difficult, but also somehow at the same time pleasing on a page by page, sentence by sentence basis, even though it's, it makes me feel sick. So I don't really know if pleasing is the right word for it, <laughs> but you know, like it just, it feels like, people's impulses take them one way or the other and there are these two traditions and and one tradition is like pop art and it's genre fiction it's elmore leonard uh more contemporary people like uh you know james elroy and uh, james salas and megan abbott and people like that right so that's that's one ingredient in my personal soup but then you know there is the you know the pierre guillotin and the um you know blake butler and Jane Unruh and Mary Robinson and people like that who are on the other end who, who've created these like kind of insane puzzle books almost puzzle might be the wrong word for them but like abstract and I've just like my constant goal is to like synthesize those two things like is it possible to have a fun interesting entertaining mindfuck of a book yeah I, I think like the genre stuff is important too to have sort of like a, a a presentable and approachable like aesthetic to drape these like other experimental aspects over because mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. i think about something like uh atlanta which since it came out has had like it's had coattail writers it's had it's you know it's had like style biters but Anytime, so anytime since Atlanta, somebody has told me like, "Oh, bro, this thing's like Atlanta. You'll love it." I, I don't mm-hmm. because it's like I get what they mean of it being like like Atlanta, where it's like sort of sitcom structure, but sort of played deadpan, and it's like the and a lot of like surreal, weird stuff happens. But what the biters get wrong is like Atlanta isn't about being weird. And it's not a, it's not about these people. It's not really about people. Like those characters are just um, the way that mythology, like we, you know, we come up with different gods to represent different ideas. Like it, Atlanta just seems like a vehicle of different ideas and different vibes to me, which is why like, which is why I thought of that and talking about all this and why like none of the, uh, nothing that has been like Atlanta since then has actually been like it at all. You know who else is really good at doing this is Harmony Corinne, right? Um, so Harmony Corinne was an, is another person who gets this like this m- mixture of high and low. That's really all we're talking about, right? Like we're talking about the mixture of, of high and low art, essentially. And I, I just, I don't find enough of it, you know? I mean, it's it's kind of one way or the other. I watched Sicario and Sicario 2, and those are genre pieces that have aspirations towards being some kind of higher art form, but that's it's not quite what I'm looking for, you know? I, I mean, I think that they're, they're perfectly fine movies. 
but they're just genre movies that look really good and and don't you know kind of fall into the um, sort of cheesy genre traps that a lot of those kind of movies and shows fall into. But Atlanta is a perfect representation. Harmony Corinne, uh, David Lynch to a certain extent does that. But you see, you see how I'm, I'm naming all all filmmakers. It's yeah. kind of like what's yeah. the what's the writing equivalent to that? And I would have to say stuff like it's not a whole lot of fiction, but you know, there's like Jason Babek Mohagig's uh, Omnicide was a really good one, which is just a nonfiction analysis of Arabic poetry, but that's really fucking good. And that he allows himself to go to some pretty uh, interesting places with his prose within the book. Um, you know, books like Cyclonopedia, um, even A Thousand Plateaus, you know, are like these kind of mixtures of, well, A Thousand Plateaus is pretty fucking weird, but like these kind of mixtures of, of actual philosophy and then kind of theory fiction and, and absurdity and, and strangeness. I'm talking in theory fiction sense with like uh, Cyclonopedia specifically. But yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's just, there's not a whole lot of it out there, which is tricky, right? It's tricky as a writer because if there's not a lot out there, there is a strong probability that it's because nobody else wants that shit. And thus, thus is our curse. <laughs> <laughs> well, or, or the book is just the heart of a more difficult uh, medium to express that kind of vibe in. I, th- I think the most approachable medium for people of this mindset is like music because I think mm-hmm. what we're actually getting at is just something that has uh, a unique soul to it like it's not the structure doesn't necessarily matter like I'm personally not looking for something that's like well what do you mean do you want like a, a narrative that's written in reverse do you want like a uh, something that only has one paragraph per page do you it's like it doesn't it's not like like maybe it might come in those forms but that's not like the delivery isn't necessarily what matters it's the experimental nature of it it's like the the creative force behind it the curious and uh sort of loki-esque like spirit of wanting to like just fuck with everything Mm -hmm. and the alchemist like like level of wanting to like sort of tear everything apart to to put it back into something different made of the same pieces but like to look at in a different way all that said uh, Perfect Blue is a good example of this, I think. I think if there was, uh, if the novel sort of maybe um, adhered to the film instead of being whatever it is, then, then maybe the, that might be a book that we were kind of talking about. I, um, I also uh, just straight up throw out a shameless plug. You know, my new book is called You Pray for Dry Weather at the Sight of the Sun, and it is my first... It's dipping my toes into exactly the kind of thing that Kelby and I are talking about, right? Um, and the next book, the book that I've already started working on, Dying World, is is in, in structure. 
it's very similar to this. I think it's just how I'm going to write books from now on, but it's it's introducing more uh, straight up genre fiction elements to it. So you'll have to check that out. And you know, it's it's about a video game called Death Stranding, and also about being a dad. And so uh, you know, it's about nine thousand words, uh, which it's like fifty, sixty pages, something like that. And it's kind of a kind of a proof of concept. Of, of sort of what we're talking about. And the feedback that I've gotten from everybody who's read it is that it was, that it's really entertaining, right? But it's also, and it also has those weird elements that I'm talking about. So we'll see if it works. Yeah. I'll, I'll, tweet, no, it, I'll tweet it at Kojima and see if he, he gives me a retweet or I don't know, maybe tries to sue me. I don't know, but either way, either way it's, it's good. <laughs> either way, <laughs> either way, I wouldn't be surprised, and either way would be a blessing. Um, mm-hmm. No, I think it is a perfect representation. I mean, we are seeking to, you know, in talking about all of this, none of it is ever to bitch about the times and like. Uh, no, no. It no. it is all an attempt at articulation of the process that that is happening like you know we're both actually putting putting action to the ideas and i think uh you pray for dry weather is a great representation of exactly what we're talking about because it, it it's about uh it, it it has sections describing what happens in a video game it has sections talking about playing the video game and what you feel in the book like what you actually take away from it or what I took away from it was a story about this anxiety of fatherhood and the desire to be uh, better Mm -hmm. yeah and that's I mean that's pretty much what was what was intended right so I mean I think I think people like it. I think that it's it's definitely you know I'd mentioned earlier in this conversation that there are people who whenever I bring this up they say like oh well you're talking about this or you're talking about this, but I haven't I haven't seen it. You see what I mean? Like I haven't seen what I'm talking about yet. So I mean I could do a hundred podcasts like this talk, trying to talk about it and try to describe it, or you know people like you and me and a few other people can just you know make the books and be like see this is this is what i'm talking about and who knows i might not be describing it well at all but i think i know what i'm talking about so and hopefully uh this this will sort of be a going forth with that like you know dropping these projects as we continue to articulate this ongoing aesthetic manifesto we open up a conversation with people to be like mm-hmm. so do you get it <laughs> are we saying yeah, it right no, where right 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 like please somebody no, catch on you know i'm really i'm really glad that you mentioned that this because this podcast is actually an important part of the project um it's um because the influence of of all the examples that i used this is how fucking brain dead I am. Of all the examples that I used, I mean, Mike is is the example. Like he's the perfect example of what I'm talking about: the blending of high and low, amateurism and professionalism, uh, caring and not caring, um, pest, uh, homage, pastiche, 
uh, collage, tonal shifting, um, all of these things. And the reason why Kelby and I harp on these movies all the time is because these are the clearest, especially Mike's run from 1995 to about 2003, I think is a, is a perfect filmographic representation of what I'm trying to talk about uh, to see if it can be done maybe maybe with books. So so Agitator is is a piece of this whole thing. And I think that, uh, you know, you've mentioned to us actually putting some of these thoughts down, you know, into a into a book. And I think that that's definitely on the on the horizon soon. But I, I once again, I do feel like we're, we're talking about something that is maybe not uh, mind blowingly unique. But, you know, if I if I found something that I was looking for with regard to what I'm talking about here, then I wouldn't be talking about this, right? <laughs> so so right, it's something right. something a little bit different. We're just trying to stir the fire, you know, when you said, like, yeah. it doesn't have to be mind-blowingly unique. And I think having some sort of pop sensibility is important because you want to enjoy something. I mean, even shit that feels very uncomfortable, like Perfect Blue is a very uncomfortable movie, but I enjoyed it. Uh, you're we're stirring the fire not like trying to blow up the pit you know what i mean mm -hmm. like yeah it's exactly just trying to trying to move move the wood around and shake things up see you know see some different shapes cast shadows on the wall instead of just yeah letting it burn out i truly think that the future of books if they're going to survive i think that the key especially if you're talking about genre fiction I think the key is looking to uh, underground Japanese filmmakers. I think I think that's exactly where we need to look at everything from everything from their you know kind of uh, their workmanlike approach to the actual act of making these things to their kind of just chaotic uh, wabi-sabi approach. I really think that authors. Could, could would be doing themselves a favor by revisiting Miike's catalog and Tsukamoto's catalog and, uh, you know, Sion Sano's catalog, all the people who we talk about on this show, Satoshi Khan's catalog, etc. Yeah, and if you want a shortcut, just listen to the show.